0: Welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with my co-host Joe Jordan and intern Tommy Martin. Today on the program, a visit with California Governor Jerry Brown's senior policy advisor, Ken Alex. will explore how California will stay the course on the environment during the Trump era. Also, an interview with David Austin, a researcher in the Institute for Energy Efficiency and director of the Tomcat UC Carbon Neutrality Project at the University of California, Santa Barbara. The goal of that project is to get all the UCs to be carbon neutral by 2025. Plus, science notes and news coming up next right here on Planet Watch with Joe Jordan, Tommy Martin, and myself, Rachel Ann Goodman. Thanks for being along for the ride. So for the news today, we have a couple of items for you. For you surfers out there, imagine a wave 100 meters wide, 50 foot tall, moving 40 miles per hour in your direction as you navigate the ocean. That's what scientists detected in the North Sea on November 9, 2007, using a series of ocean sensors. It turns out giant rogue waves are more common than thought, occurring perhaps twice during each major storm. Those are the findings from the University of Miami Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Science. And scientist Mark Donnellan and his colleagues at Norwegian meteorological institute analyzed data between two fixed buoys which could detect the velocity and wave height above average sea surface levels so the next time you watch the perfect storm the movie remember that giant wave that ate george clooney remember it's not all that rare to see these rogue waves but you have to be at sea during a major storm so beware (laughs)
1: Wow, that uh, that actually reminds me of a phenomenon we can talk about some other time maybe. The, it probably wasn't one of these, but there are these things called solitons. <laughs> Uh, science people may have heard about solitons when they were first popularized maybe 20 years ago. I actually did some research on that a long time ago uh, in a fluid dynamics class at the university here. And there are these heaps of water that can just travel for miles <laughs> unchanged in their shape. Well, maybe not miles, but a really long distance, uh, first uh, A noted account was a very colorful account of one that was observed in a canal while some people were going along the uh, pathway along the canal. Anyway, uh, okay, well, hey, here's my first news item for you. I opened my window this morning, and uh, outside it didn't look right. (laughs) Welcome to Daylight Savings Time. It's an hour later now than you might have thought, in which case you're probably not hearing me say this now. <laughs> you're you're going to tune in about an hour from now. Um, but maybe you'll hear this on the archives for this radio show, and I don't know if we've ever announced it before, but all these shows you can get now off the web, zbsradio.com. That's Z as in zebra. zbsradio.com. Just go to Planet Watch. You can get any of the other shows uh, that come from this radio station too. But uh, anyway, they're all archived. So.
0: And if you want to see what we look like i don't know that's that's uh, questionable (laughs) but we are streaming live now on facebook if you go to facebook and look up planet watch radio look at our page not our group you'll see our happy smiling faces Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) oh and uh, another cool thing about daylight savings time when that happens each time zone across the world temporarily is separated from the immediately east of it time zone by two hours (laughs) so for instance at 1 a.m. our time in California last night. The mountain time zone to our east Suddenly switched to 3am So it was 1am here and 3am In the adjacent time zone And this phenomenon propagates around the world in a wave (laughs) It's it's all artificial
0: This whole daylight savings thing I think we should abolish it But that's another show (laughs) Tommy, you had something related to um, actual time Versus real time In the actual seasons that we're experiencing
2: Yeah, and thanks to the New York Times For this interesting piece of um, Information Uh, March 20th marks the first official day of spring, but in the southern U.S. it arrived much earlier. Some areas saw their first leaves budding out in mid-January. A study by scientists from the group group, the World Weather Attribution um, looked at the influence of climate change on the abnormally warm temperatures. They used models of the uh, existing atmosphere and a hypothetical one with no greenhouse gas emissions. They found a warm February like this year is about four times more likely in the current climate than it would have been in 1900. An early spring can throw off farmers' crop schedules and tourism events like like tree blossomings. Uh, Early growth of grasses and other vegetation can also disrupt animals' spring feeding and growth cycles.
0: Scary stuff. I guess a lot of people who have been seeing their trees blossom corroborate that. um, I have. Uh, In the southern United States, it's apparently more pronounced. And I just heard it was um, something like 90 degrees today in southern California and 5 degrees in Toronto, so maybe that's normal. (laughs) Again, these small fluctuations of localized temperatures are really not um, something that we can point to and say, yes, that's climate change. But when you see whole seasons backing up three months... As they are saying in this study, it's a whole different ball of wax.
1: The new normal, so to speak. (laughs) Let's see, am I going next with the big story? Okay, we got a big story here. (laughs) We're going to spend a little more time on this because this is super important. A team of engineers led by a 94-year-old guy named John... Well, it's probably pronounced good now, but it's spelled good enough. It's good enough for me. Professor at the University of Texas at Austin... And co-founder, co-inventor of the lithium-ion battery, which everybody knows about, has developed the first all-solid-state battery cells that could lead to safer, faster-charging, longer-lasting, rechargeable batteries for handheld mobile devices, electric cars, and stationary energy storage, as on the grid. This is potentially quite huge as such storage capability can greatly help stabilize an electricity grid that's becoming increasingly rich with intermittent solar and wind energy sources. In other words, storage is the key to making renewable energy happen on a really large scale. Goodenough's latest breakthrough, completed with colleague Maria Helena Braga, is a low-cost, all-solid-state battery that is non-combustible and has a, a long-cycle life, battery life with very high energy density. And fast rates of charge and discharge, I mean really fast, you know, minutes instead of hours. The engineers described their new technology in a recent paper published in the journal Energy and and Environmental Science. Got to take my glasses off here so I can read this thing. (laughs) No, I don't like bifocals. Um, Cost, safety, energy density, rates of charge and discharge and cycle life are critical for battery-driven cars to be more widely adopted. We believe our battery, our discovery solves many of the problems that are inherent in today's batteries, Goodenough said. Okay, almost done here. The researchers demonstrated that their new battery cells have at least three times as much energy density as today's lithium-ion batteries. A battery cell's energy density gives an electric vehicle its driving range, so a higher energy density means that a car can drive more miles between charges. The UT Austin battery formulation also allows for a greater number of charging and discharging cycles which equates to longer-lasting batteries as well as a faster rate of recharge. Again, minutes rather than hours. Because the solid glass electrolytes can operate or have high conductivity at 4 degrees Fahrenheit, that's minus 20 degrees Celsius, this type of battery in a car could perform well in sub-freezing weather. And last little thing here, the glass electrolytes allow for substitution of low-cost sodium for lithium. Now, note, this is important. Sodium... Is extracted from seawater, widely available. Lithium, however, is mainly on the plain in Bolivia, where, by the way, China is vying with the U.S. and Bolivia itself for for control of that stuff. So, yeah, this is uh, this is potentially really big
0: couple of interesting things about that article first of all the scientist is 94 years old <laughs> and um and also the other scientist is a woman those are two notable facts and um the third thing is that this will allow people to drive a lot fa- farther and that's been the issue with electric cars in general so big breakthrough there and um I think we have time for one really short more item, the DOE story, and then we're going to go to an interview with a fellow who's reducing uh, the entire UC footprint in carbon, which is a very exciting development.
2: Uh, Yeah, we do have one more story. The U.S. Department of Energy uh, issued its second annual energy and employment report for the U.S. this past January, and the numbers didn't bode well for the fossil fuel industry. On the other hand, the statistics for the solar and renewable energy industries were impressive, demonstrating that they create more electricity generation employment than oil, gas, coal, and nuclear combined. Which is really impressive.
0: Very impressive. (laughs) We have an interview for you next um, with a fellow who is in charge of the Tomcat UC Carbon Neutrality Project at the University of California, Santa Barbara. But it involves all of the University of California's in reducing their carbon footprint to zero by the year 2025, not too far in the distant future. So let's give a listen to this interview, which we recorded at the UC Climate Conference a couple of weeks ago with Dave Austin, the director of that project. Welcome to Planet Watch everybody. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman and I'm very happy to have as my guest Dave Austin. He is a researcher in the Institute for Energy Efficiency and director of the Tomcat UC Carbon Neutrality Project at the University of California Santa Barbara. He has appointments of adjunct professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering and Materials and his current activities are focused on climate change mitigation. Thank you so much Dave for being here with us at the Climate Conference. Happy to be here. So tell us about what the goals are of the UC Climate Action Committee, or I probably misidentified it just now. Um, There's this initiative to get the UCs to really cut back on their carbon emissions. Tell us about that project.
3: Yeah, I'd be happy to. This was an initiative that was um, launched by our president, Janet Napolitano, who um, uh, really, what she did was she took an already... Uh, established goal, which was to uh, decarbonize the 10 campuses by 2050, and move the um, uh, the date forward um, uh, to 2025 for scope one and two emissions, which have to do primarily with purchased electricity and on-site combustion. And as a consequence, there uh, has been uh, a mobilization, I think is the right word, of the 10 campuses of the UC system to work towards this goal. And I've been very um, much involved working with both um, faculty, of course, but also with uh, staff and students. And uh, I want to emphasize that, uh, as you know, to accomplish a goal of this kind, which is enormously ambitious, it it means completely decarbonizing, that is um, getting off all fossil fuels uh, within a period of less than a decade. Uh, really requires um, a major effort, but also a, a multidisciplinary effort. So one of the things we've done is we've brought together People from many different disciplines, from obviously from technology areas, engineers and scientists, but also um, uh, people, faculty, students, who have a background in economics, in policy, and also importantly in behavioral science, because a lot of what we want to do requires changing behavior as well, and uh, an additional, uh, also communicating not only the importance of this, but the benefits also. And there are real benefits also in terms of uh, setting the university as um, a leader in this realm. Uh, but then again, we feel that um, as an educational and as a research institution, we have an obligation, also as a public institution, we have an obligation to do what we can and to share what we learn. We alone, in if we succeed, as we will, (laughs) uh, to decarbonize the 10 campuses. Um, That alone is, it's actually less than 1% of the greenhouse gas emissions of the state of California, and just a tiny drop in the bucket in terms of, of the global impact. But the value of it is in dealing with some of these enormously challenging issues, learning along the way. We, we we'd like to talk about ourselves as a, a living laboratory. We'll probably succeed in some areas, and in some areas we won't do as well. But by learning and then sharing what we have learned with others, we think we can have a much greater impact overall.
0: If you were to give me a time machine and vault ahead to those year, the year you're supposed to accomplish this, and look around a campus like UC Santa Cruz, what are some of the obvious outward signs that we might see of that change in action?
3: Well, as um, was discussed in many of the sessions at the conference here today, um, first of all, the way we build our buildings. Um, Uh, to do so in a more efficient way. Uh, We're still growing. Uh, All of the 10 campuses are still growing because California as a state is growing in terms of population and the number actually the number of um, college uh, eligible students is increasing at somewhere between one and two percent a year in the state and so the campus is still growing so it's important that both the new buildings that we build are as efficient as possible in their use of energy, but also that we do retrofits in existing buildings. We introduce uh, lighting, for example, that is more efficient, uh, uh, not just as actually was just discussed now in the session that we were in, uh, not just introducing LEDs, but also introducing what we call smart lighting. Lighting that, that, that not only measures and monitors occupancy in a room or a facility of some kind, but also is is intelligent with respect to the amount of daylight coming in and uh, and, and adjust the lighting accordingly. That's a simple thing. Um, Then also attacking waste energy. We, even in universities, and we're pretty good, better actually than most organizations, but we still waste a lot of energy. And uh, for example, changing our use of natural gas for heating and going to what we call 100% electrification, because as we make our electricity more green, we also have to look at other fossil fuels and natural gas is for the University uh, a biggie actually. It's two-thirds of our greenhouse gas emissions.
0: Wow, and so um, would you also be generating your own power on campus on these various campuses?
3: Well, this is a very um, complex issue because the standard way today in California to generate electricity is by natural gas by what we call turbines that burn natural gas to generate not only electricity but but the the heat that's generated in that process of burning the natural gas is also used to to heat our buildings and that's an enormous challenge because we have made major commitments and Their campus at Santa Cruz here has just made a commitment this year uh, is constructing, as you may know, uh, one of these plants that we call combined heat and power. And these are enormously cost effective. They actually reduce, they, they can produce electricity at about half the price of purchasing it from a utility. So there's an enormous incentive to do this for cost reasons, But one also has to look ahead to the time when we transition off natural gas. And there are some options to do this. One that we're looking at carefully system-wide for all the campuses is to adopt, uh, probably just temporarily, uh, biogas. That is uh, a form of natural gas, methane in particular, that's generated from such sources as landfill, organic waste and also from wastewater treatment plants. That's um, a viable option. It's slightly more expensive in the short term, but we expect over the next 10 or 20 years that those prices, that is the price of biogas and natural gas will, will be quite comparable because natural gas is slowly increasing and as biogas is produced in greater quantity, it may come down in price somewhat. So that's an interesting option for us to retain the use of these natural gas, electricity generating plants, but yet adopt them to um, biogas. However, biogas is not a long-term solution because it's not scalable, meaning that we can do it. but. The available supply is not adequate for everyone in California and everyone in the U.S. and everyone in the world to do it. There's a limited capacity, and it's just because of the feedstock, there's not enough organic waste. We could produce more organic waste, but that's not a sensible way to go. Right. Joe, do
0: you
3: have a
1: question? Yeah, big land use and water issues there, actually. Exactly. And as you said in your talk today, we don't want to get addicted to natural gas, which it sort of appears we're heading that way. Something I have not heard discussed yet at this conference, though, is that natural gas unburnt, released to the atmosphere, is a big deal. It's very powerful greenhouse gas. And, uh, you know, it's, um, that happens. You have substantial leakage, yes. and especially where fracking comes in, you know. <laughs> that's, that hasn't been mentioned at this conference yet either. Um, but uh, I kind of wanted to switch over to a positive thing here. I read something you said where with energy efficiency, uh, we can save more energy in X amount of future time than everything that will be generated from the... Uh, Clean renewable energy uh, supply resources that will come online during that time. That's interesting. I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate yes, I'd be on happy
3: that. To. The um, Department of Energy did a study a few years ago that showed that <laughs> approximately one third of all energy consumed in the United States is wasted and could be recovered. There's an even larger amount that's uh, wasted, but is due to the laws of physics, not able to re- to, to recover but a good one third of what we uh, currently consume of our energy could be captured and, uh, and saved. And, and that's an enormous uh, opportunity that hasn't been fully tapped. There have been efforts, and we do this largely through what we call energy efficiency. That is, instead of conserving energy, which is also important, conserving is doing, saving energy by doing less energy efficiency is saving energy by deploying technology that permits us to accomplish the same tasks but with much less energy. And the other aspect of this that's very important is that we not only save energy, we save money. Because when we save energy, we're actually paying less for our utilities. And and, and, and those funds can then be not only reducing our bottom line and uh, making it easier for us to accomplish our goals, but they can be reinvested. And what some of the universities are doing now, which is really important, is they're, they're setting up something called a Green Revolving Fund, where they capture the cost savings of energy efficiency, put them in a fund, and then use those to make investments in new energy efficiency measures so that it's perpetuated and grows and can actually uh, be even more impactful over the longer term.
0: What are some other examples of energy capture? You, it sounded like you know we would actually be capturing energy that was extra. Um, can you give us some other examples in other systems, maybe other than sure. buildings, that the average person can get their brain around?
3: Yeah, one of the uh, big opportunities is um, to capture waste heat in um, computer. Uh, facilities, for example, uh, and, and data centers such as Google and Amazon use, for example. Right now, what happens is that all of the electricity, and it's enormous, and you, uh, electricity that is required to run these big computer and other centers of this kind um, ends up being dissipated as heat, and it, there's so much heat that you have to extract it from the building, otherwise the equipment gets too hot and and becomes damaged. But what we do now, for the most part, is that we just blow that heat into the air, um, either through cooling systems that use chilled water or air systems, and that's lost. There's something called a heat pump, which is a a novel and very simple, well-established technology which enables you to move heat from one place to another. And moving heat is a whole lot more efficient than generating new heat. And so the the savings that can be accomplished this way is that if, um, and and let's take the university campus here as an example at Santa Cruz, if you have a computer center and a laboratory and another set of buildings that are generating heat because you're dissipating electricity in them, you can extract that heat and then move it to another part on campus, such as a dormitory or an office building or a lecture hall, where you need heat Heat on a day like today. You're running your heat at the same time in some of these buildings, as you are cooling other parts of the campus, but dis- there's a disconnect between the two.
0: But aren't your refrigerators like that too? I mean, when it's a hot, a really hot day, my refrigerator is hot in the back to try to keep the food cold. And it seems like in giant refrigeration yeah. facilities, they have the opposite problem, where they're or same problem, where they're using a lot of electricity to keep things cold, but they're generating
3: heat. is actually a heat pump. It it moves <laughs> heat. It, what it does is it takes heat energy from inside the refrigerator and moves outside but it's not terribly efficient either most refrigerators just end up heating your living room
1: hey i got one more burning question for you dave Um, we talked a little bit about this last night what you referred to as the rebound effect Uh, energy efficiency Uh, gets a bad rap from some people to the effect that, well, okay, you make things more efficient, people are just going to become more wasteful in their usage, sort of consumer habits, I guess. And you pointed out the difference between, say, driving cars, where that's more of a problem, versus, say, lighting, where there's only so much lighting people can use. So, you know, if we have more efficient lights, then, yeah, that efficiency, those gains will stay. But how big a deal is this rebound effect? Uh, Is energy efficiency not worth striving for? (laughs) Or what's your take on all that?
3: It's not a major effect, and and as you said, um, in some sectors of our economy, it's more important than in others. And um, the cases you mentioned, uh, transportation, yes, people will drive somewhat more if the cost and the mileage uh, efficiency of their automobiles is better. But in most cases, it's, it's it's a small effect, and uh, in a lot of cases, as you, you gave the one example of replacing incandescent light bulbs with LEDs, for example, we, we don't increase the amount of lighting that we use. We may be a little more careless in terms of not turning lights off, but that's all about behavior and education, which we need to do in any case. And so uh, I personally am not concerned about what's known as the rebound effect, because it's uh, one relatively small. It doesn't cancel all, but only a small part of the gains. And so it's still worth making those gains. And, uh, and also with education and uh, behavioral modification, which is also an important part of saving energy, uh, a lot of that rebound is just completely eliminated.
0: Great. Well, I want to thank you for being here. And one final question for um, you go back to the conference. We're sitting here at the UC Climate uh, and Policy Conference. Um, what's your sense of the future in the next 20 to 25 years? What do you think we're going to be seeing in the way of innovation along the lines of what you're talking about? What would you like to see and how fast?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, of course, we'd like to solve all our problems overnight. And we know, we know that these take sometimes much longer than we would like them to on the and it's and your question is multidimensional as i understand it because it's not just about the technology but it's about policy issues it's about behavioral change it's about economics also, also on the technology side the single biggest uh, need is for better batteries energy storage um, that is important both for the electricity sources that we have which are moving towards renewable solar and wind which are intermittent that is there they're not only intermittent but they're not responsive they're not what we call dispatchable that is if there's uh, an increased need for electricity we can't just suddenly turn up the amount of sun or the amount of wind and so there's a, a need both to average for, through storage, the intermittency, but also the need for the sources of electricity to be responsive to the needs, the the load, what we call. Uh, and then also, there's a need for um, transportation, for electric vehicles to be widely deployed. The batteries must be not only less costly and, and, and have a larger storage capacity, but they also have to be rechargeable. Um, and, and, and there are also issues, it's not a major one, but it's an important one with regard to safety, as you probably know, especially with lithium-ion batteries. Uh, and and uh, the disposal issue also of, uh, you know, we have to look at the full life cycle of these. That's on the technology side. On the policy side, there's uh, and a lot of discussion at this climate conference today about the concerns that with the changes in government uh, at the federal level, that many of the needed policies will be either retarded, inhibited, or in some cases set aside. and. We may lose some time uh, there, but there's a lot of momentum going forward, and my own feeling is that that will be a pause, uh, a disappointing one, uh, if it's uh, of uh, a significant impact. Uh, but it's, it's really just a bump in the road, in my opinion, on a process that is already set in motion and is moving with a lot of its own momentum. Uh, So I'm optimistic that things will move forward on the policy side also, and on the economic side as well. The fact that as more wind and solar is deployed, those costs continue to go down. The same is true for batteries. Um, We did a, a workshop on batteries recently at the University of California, and the general consensus is that there's a good factor of two opportunity to reduce the cost of batteries over the next five to seven years. So there's a lot of forward motion, and uh, you know, government uh, is also uh, there's an inertia associated with making change at the federal government level that may actually work in our favor this time. That <laughs> it, uh, it's not always the case, but uh, I think that uh, um, the the fact is that uh, many and this also gives me some. Uh, Uh, positive uh, inspiration is that I work with a lot of young people. Uh, I like to say it was my generation, the older generation, that screwed up this planet, but it's the younger people who are really going to make the difference and solve it. And uh, what I see among the younger people is an even stronger determination to make change and to continue the, the quest for uh, solving climate change and uh, that's very heartening I find that uh, uh, it, it's, it's a bump in the road but uh, we're going to move forward and uh, I'm sure we're going to achieve the goals we've set.
0: Well I want to thank you uh, Dave Austin for being our guest here on Planet Watch it's been inspiring to listen to you and thank you very much for being here.
3: Thank you my pleasure.
0: That question. All right. Dear that Lord. was an interview with Dave Austin uh, from the UC Climate Project. And a welcome to Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman along with Tommy Martin and Joe Jordan here in the studios. Thank you for tuning in this afternoon. If you'd like to get in touch with us or ask a question, you can get in touch with us via email at, planetwatchradio at <laughs> Gmail, radio radio Planet Radio at Gmail. Radio Planet Watch, watch <laughs> at Gmail.com. Again, Radio Planet Watch <laughs> at Gmail.com.
1: Yeah, and we actually have uh, a question from a listener. And by the way, if you're looking at the live video feed uh, via Facebook, you can see a few meters from where we are broadcasting from right now. Very pretty picture of the beach in Santa Cruz area. Uh, Here's the question from Linda up in the hills around here. Uh, She's addressed it to that last speaker dave austin in your talk at the conference you suggested that the university of california is aiming for reducing its greenhouse gas emissions to zero do you think that the transitional use of biogas would be lengthened or shortened by the introduction of a national price on carbon now um we uh, don't have scott uh, dave austin with us that was a recorded interview but um here's here's the way i'm going to handle that because we have a lot of stuff to cover in the last part of the show here uh i will send him that question i sort of have an idea of an answer myself but we can talk about it next week Uh, combine all that next week but thanks so much for that question and um along those lines at the end of his interview there you heard him talk about the federal level the new changes in government and um another little news item that Maybe all of you have heard, but maybe not. Uh, The new director of the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt made this infamous statement this week that carbon dioxide doesn't have anything to do with global warming, or, or thereabouts. You know, he didn't say it exactly like that, but that's, that was his implication, that uh, it's very challenging to tease all this out, and, you know, there's tons of disagreement among scientists. Well, uh, anyway, there was a climate change flood of calls to his office, and things really heated up, and it was just an unprecedented show of truth in response to that absolute falsehood and that's big news and uh, well everybody ought to know that that's, uh, that's who's in control now we need to get this straightened out in a hurry
0: All right. Thank you. And and coming up next, someone who's done a lot of thinking about policy um, concerning climate change and the state of California being one of the premier states in the United States to have tackled the issue quite early on with its AB 32, the climate change bill. It's uh, been always an innovative state. And the person we're going to hear from next is Jerry Brown's senior policy advisor to the governor of California on environmental and other policy issues. So I spoke with him By Skype, so the interview quality is not what we'd love, but it was great that he gave us a generous amount of his time. We're going to find out what California is doing uh, to tackle this big... His name is Ken Alex. His name is Ken Alex. To tackle this big, important issue, listen to Ken Alex, Senior Policy Advisor to Governor Jerry Brown. Rachel Ann Goodman, and I'm speaking to Ken Alex. He is Senior Policy Advisor and Director of the Office of Planning and Research for Governor Jerry Brown. Thank you for being with us here on Planet Watch.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: So I met you at the conference at UC Santa Cruz. It was all about climate and policy. So I wanted to start out by asking you, um, in the new era with a new president, how is Governor Brown's climate policy going to fare in the upcoming years? (laughs)
4: Well, the first thing to say is, you know, California has a very full climate policy and program. Um, Governor Brown is leading that effort, and that's going to continue. So how will it fare? Um, I think in some ways uh, we'll have challenges dealing with the federal government if they change their view and their policy, uh, as they've indicated. Um, But in most ways, uh, California which has a 40% reduction goal for 2030 for greenhouse gas emissions. We're just going to continue forward. We have our state laws and state requirements. Those all remain on the books. And uh, I think we're pretty well prepared to rededicate our efforts.
0: It's wonderful news. I heard somewhere that there was some law that said that um, federal governments can sometimes stop state governments from... Going above and beyond the policy at the federal level, could um, the Trump administration do anything to stop California from uh, being more environmentally friendly than other parts of the country?
4: Yes, um, the 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 way the Constitution is uh, set up, the U.S. Constitution, uh, if the federal government so chooses and passes a specific law, it can preempt state action. But the way um, federal climate and and other uh, environmental laws are set up right now um, they they basically form a minimum that all states uh, must meet um, California in the most in most instances has chosen to have additional environmental protection so it would be a pretty big change uh, doesn't mean it's not possible doesn't mean it hasn't been discussed and considered um, but I think uh, it, it would take a significant change at the at the federal level uh, to really severely undermine California's efforts.
0: So, in this environment, what are some of the top priorities that um, immediately got discussed and are continuing to be discussed as you know the EPA changes?
4: Well, I, I it. May not may surprise people to know, I, I don't know that our priorities have changed at all. I mean, California has spent, you know, the last 60 years or so, 50 years or so, um, really working on basic things like air pollution, and we've made tremendous progress in the LA basin, as I think most people know, um, and elsewhere in California. Uh, we continue to work on clean water and and uh, all the usual environmental sets of, of issues. And um, in most instances, I think Californians would say that we've done reasonably well protecting our environment, which uh, obviously is important to every Californian. Much of our effort over the last decade now and as we go forward is around climate change. The the, the biggest challenge and, as the governor says, a, a really an existential challenge. We have one of the longest coastlines in the world. Uh, we're threatened by uh, sea level rise. Uh, we have uh, a snowpack that represents a third of our water supply that's threatened by uh, increasing temperatures that turn that into rain instead of snow. Um, we see uh, this year that we have the challenge of floods as well as drought. Uh, fires and, and other pretty big challenges. So, uh, a lot of our effort is going to be uh, focused both on reducing our greenhouse gas emissions and really responding uh, and making our, uh, our infrastructure more resilient.
0: Darn, in all this time, I thought our biggest problem is we were going to fall into the ocean, and now you're telling me it's a lot and- worse. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, you know, the, it, to some extent, um, it, not to be uh, funny about it, but, you know, we are seeing, ironically, from sea level rise, uh, as opposed to earthquakes, um, some threat to uh, to certain homes and businesses that are uh, potentially going into the ocean.
0: Well, I wanted to talk about that first, because you mentioned it. We do have one of the longest, the longest coastline Is it possible to pass some sort of policy that is connected to the Coastal Commission that makes new development along the coast have to (laughs) give us the 50-year plan and how it makes sense at all to build that close? I remember there was an eco-resort attempting to go in down here near Monterey, right on the beach, and I thought, that's not very eco, given what we're hearing.
4: (laughs) Yeah, so so already uh, the Coastal Commission has adopted policies uh, around uh, sea level rise, and I think they are um, integrating um, that set of issues into how they're looking at coastal development. There's also, under the California Environmental Quality Act, uh, some requirement to evaluate the relationship of a project to uh, the impacts of climate change. It's um, it's it's got some legal nuance to it, but uh, there there already is in the law um, requirements to evaluate that, and I I know that the Coastal Commission um, has guidance on that, and and it's going to be part of their evaluation going forward.
0: So there is some sort of potential building code that could eventually come along that says what you have to build higher, or farther away. Um, anyway. Yeah.
4: So. Everything that uh, is being built, whether it's at the coast or, uh, you know, uh, for example, in in the Sierras that are more prone to fire and uh, areas where they're where they're prone to droughts, all of those uh, developments now must consider um, some of the potential, both for for the impact of climate, but also. Um, must really start to think about how you build resilience into your structure and and into your development. So it's got a ways to go. And we're at, you know, really some of the early stages of thinking about what it means to be truly resilient. Um, But that is starting to really be integrated into development.
0: And you mentioned some of the other um, areas like water. Let's talk about that. I'm sure that the governor's been busy, you know, with the Oroville Dam having trouble so, And that's on the other extreme of too much water. But you said it's not just a problem of too much water. It's when it comes down. And what we just saw with the, the flooding may be indicative of regular springs, maybe, um, you know, when the snow melt comes down all at once. So what's going to be the infrastructure plan there to deal with those kind of extremes?
4: Yeah, really good question. The, the A lot of the, the climate models... Uh, Say something interesting one is that precipitation itself as a total for the season might not change too much Um, But but the way that it comes at us will very much change so that you might end up with long dry periods and then heavy heavy downpours and That has all kinds of consequences for how we operate our flood control systems just as one example so right now uh, dams. a lot of the dams are required before the rainy season to, to be uh, reduced to about 50% of their capacity. Um, and that may not make sense in a new si- uh, system where you have large-scale events um, and long, long-term times of drought. Um, so that has got to be rethought, and, and at the federal level, the Army Corps of Engineers is responsible for that, and at the state level, the Department of Water Resources they're working through uh, really sophisticated new models to think about some of those responses. And of course, regardless, uh, in California, we know that we're always challenged around water, and we have to think about the consequences of, of uh, the impacts on groundwater in particular.
0: It feels particularly um, cogent to be talking about this right now after one of the biggest storms and uh, all of the uh, damage, including in Big Sur, where there's complete community cut off from the rest of the world near us Um, it seems like infrastructure is going to be increasingly important and like you said that's a federal and a state partnership given uh, some of the tensions between California and the the White House is there any chance we might just be left in the dirt in the dust here by uh, because of natural disasters Uh, well you know what I'm aiming at
4: yeah i do i, I what i want to say first is um you know governor brown has reached out to the to the federal administration particularly uh, around infrastructure we have massive infrastructure needs in the 50 billion dollar level in california and the governor is very focused on trying to figure out how we how we meet those needs Um, The Trump administration has uh, certainly indicated an interest in working on infrastructure as well. So we actually were hopeful that that's an area where California and the federal government can work together. Um, It may be the case that, you you know, uh, you you noted the the bridge closure in Big Sur. That's pretty traumatic. Um, Obviously, Oroville Dam uh, is another infrastructure issue that has caused great upheaval for lots of people in California. Um, the, the good news is that the federal government did respond to the governor's request for an emergency order, and I think we're working together well. Um, we certainly hope and expect that the historic relationship between states and federal government around disaster issues continues to be nonpartisan
0: and really about the dealing with the issues of people who face an emergency. What do you say to people who, who only halfway joking say it's time to secede? I mean, that, that was not a completely glib conversation that erupted after the election. There's sort of a sense that California is mapping its own future and often leading the rest of the world. Um, how do you talk to people who say that to you?
4: Well, I, you know, California will continue to to map its own future and will continue to lead the world. That's part of our our DNA, I would say, but we've always done that in the context of being part of the United States, whether we're fully aligned with uh, the federal government or not. And I I think that'll continue. You know, under the U.S. Constitution, there actually is not no provision for California or any other state to secede. So I I don't imagine that's going to happen anytime soon.
0: No doubt. A couple more questions for you. Um, what about fracking? This seems to be one way we can reduce greenhouse gases by using slightly less polluting fuels, but there's also big cost to our water. Well, what's been the governor's position and is that evolving around fracking?
4: So we see fracking as primarily a regulatory issue. Um, you know, California the, the fracking doesn't occur in, in the way that it does in uh, in the East Coast. It's a different geologic formation in California, and so the 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 um, impacts of fracking here are probably somewhat more limited. In addition, California has done um, uh, an independent scientific review uh, around fracking and. Um, the, the public and local communities can look at that and see it and figure out um, in part how they want to respond and the Department of uh, uh, dogger as we call it that uh, oversees those issues um, will continue to look at the regulatory response and uh, um, uh, the uh, s- some of the um, strongest fracting uh, uh responses have been in local communities, including Monterey and others, and we continue, We suspect that will continue to be the case.
0: Mm-hmm. So then in closing, um, we have AB 32, which is the landmark um, climate change bill in California. Do you expect there to be a, a revisions to that as we go along?
4: So there, last year, um, there were a couple of bills uh, a couple, and that are now signed into law. One of them is called SB 32. Uh, that uh, extended AB 32 um, that uh, now sets a 40 percent goal for reduction for California's greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Um, There are uh, some companion bills to that that um, have some requirements for uh, to make sure that disadvantaged communities get some particular attention funding and otherwise uh, as we work on climate solutions. Um, I expect there'll be a lot of effort this year around extending uh, in a very specific way cap and trade. Um, and yes, uh, the, the legislature um, continues to have a strong interest in the subject, uh, as of course does the governor. So I would certainly expect California to continue uh, to its leadership on uh, laws and legislation in connection to AB 32.
0: Wonderful. Um, any last thoughts you'd like to leave us with as as we go here today?
4: Well, thanks very much for uh, focusing on the subject. Uh, it, it probably uh, isn't getting quite enough attention, and you know, we uh, in California want to make sure that uh, everybody uh, continues to pay as much attention as as it deserves and uh, bring people along uh, with some of the economic benefit. Uh, associated with the response as well with clean energy and cleaner air and uh, probably um, improving jobs situation in California as well. So hopefully that message is part of uh, our effort as well.
0: Well thank you. I've been speaking with Ken Alex. He's senior policy advisor to Governor Jerry Brown and director of the Office of Planning and Research for the State of California. Thank you for being with us here on Planet Watch. My pleasure. And we're on Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. Thank you for tuning in this afternoon. And Joe Jordan is with me. And we have had several questions come in on email at RadioPlanetWatch at gmail.com.
1: Yeah, just during that last couple of interviews, including ones from all over the world, actually. uh, Here's one. Uh, Does it really do any good for people to contact politicians with our concerns about climate change? Should we email phone Pruitt, for example, or our Congress people? Rachel, I think, has a quick answer for that one.
0: Well, I once worked for an assembly member, and yes, it does make a difference. They catalog these telephone calls and they tally the various positions, and so apparently um, there's been an unprecedented flood of input from the populace, and this is on both sides of the aisle, calling their senators, Congress people and all the way down to the city council level to express dismay over some of the recent changes, especially in environmental protection. So apparently Scott Pruitt had to add several new phone lines and in the EPA office over the week uh, last week as the statement came out so, yes, it does work, and people should continue to express. That is our democracy. We have the right to express ourselves. Thank goodness still. And coming up on the next Planet Watch, we'll interview Fred Keeley. He is the author of some major oceans legislation, as well as some net metering legislation having to do with solar energy. That'll be a great conversation next on Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman.
1: Joe Jordan. Keep an eye on the sky.
2: And Tommy Martin.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
5: The trees in a tropical rainforest contain about 600 to 700 tons of carbon per acre. A global project aims to keep that carbon in the trees. I'm Jim Metzner, and this is the Pulse of the Planet. Forests are able to absorb carbon dioxide into their tissues at a lot higher rate than an agricultural system. Verl Emrick is a research scientist at the Conservation Management Institute at Virginia Tech. So when a forest is cut down, it not only releases all the carbon dioxide maintained within the trees, The agricultural farming system that replaces it will then not be able to absorb the same amount of carbon dioxide that a forest would. Emrick and his team have been in the Peruvian Amazon measuring and counting rainforest trees. The reason we are doing all of this measurement and determining the total carbon tons per acre for the forest is to help people in developed countries offset their carbon dioxide use. For instance, an airline that is continuing to operate, they're still putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. However, they can calculate the amount of carbon dioxide they put out on a yearly basis and determine how much of that can be offset by supporting good forestry practices in the tropical countries and maintaining those forests in order to fix the equivalent carbon that they are putting out during their operations. It's called the Carbon Offset Project, and it gives less developed nations an economic incentive to maintain their forests intact. These countries can then calculate the tons of carbon maintained in their forest. Companies will then pay these local landowners in less developed countries to maintain their forest cover, and it will also benefit local communities and local economies. I'm Jim Metzner, and this is The Pulse of the Planet.